this is Kinonomics, actually. Is it? This is it. I had no idea. This is it. It's Thursday. It's new. And I was on Freightwaves Now yesterday, and I was like, mm-hmm. welcome back to Freightwaves uh, Freightonomics. Welcome and back to Freightonomics on a Tuesday morning. Yeah, I, I just, I was jumping a gun. But this is Freightonomics, and I'm Anthony Smith, Chief Economist here at Freightwaves, and I'm joined by the one, the only, Zach Strickland, the Sultan of Sonar himself, head of freight market intelligence. I mean, that's what they call me. You are really like the engine within Sonar and the market expert <laughs> team that really kind of ties it all together. And sometimes I don't think you get enough credit. I don't know. I feel I feel creditable. Okay. Credited. All right. All right. That's <laughs> enough for me. I don't want you to get too too big of a head. But this is Freightonomics where we combine freight and economics together. And this is the show, the podcast that you didn't know that you needed because there's a lot going on in the freight world and the supply chain world, of course, over the last two years. And there's definitely not been a dull moment within our macro economy. And Zach, we got a bunch to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, the rail strike, obviously the biggest news of the week. Hopefully you tuned into Freightways now this morning and saw Joanna Marsh and Mike Bowdendistel uh, give the latest scoop on that and details. Uh, now, I guess the bottom line, Anthony, is that there's no strike. Yeah. And a lot of people were just going about their day like, you know, they would... You know, nobody, I don't think a lot of people realized how big of an impact this would have had on their daily lives. Even if you don't have anything to do with logistics and transportation, it would have been a tremendous thing. And I guess the, you know, the thought here, Anthony, is that everybody's kind of waiting on what's next. Like what's, what are the things that are coming up that we can't see that we're, you know, everybody's trying to get back to this pristine living, you know, that was like this post-Cold War environment uh, from, you know, and we did have some bumps along the way, but they were relatively predictable, like the housing market collapsed in 2008. Tons of people saw that coming. Um, You know, greed run wild. Uh, It's part of it. Uh, But we came back and it was like a super stable climate, you know, for about six, seven, eight years, really, until things started to get wonky. And then, of course, COVID comes along. So the theme of today's show is what's next and what are some of the risks that are still sitting out there that we're not necessarily paying attention to. Yeah, and there's a lot to jump in through all that. And if you see me looking down periodically, I'm not being that rude, only a little bit rude. Mm -hmm. I am looking at LinkedIn. So if you're watching on LinkedIn right now, and I see a few of you are, jump into the comments. You have any takeaways throughout the show, the talking points, you have a hot take, you have a question for Zach, you want to get them canceled, whatever it might be jump into those LinkedIn comments if you happen to be watching on LinkedIn at 12 Eastern Standard Time on this Thursday afternoon. Yeah, and with that being said, I got to give the people what they want, Anthony. They want their market update in less than two minutes. Let's do it. In less than two minutes. Uh, So I think we're all queued up and ready to go. Of course, for those of you that haven't been watching, this is my attempt at giving you a quick recap and also a little update on what the freight market is doing domestically with sometimes a little international twist. So, Anthony, if you want to do the honors and count me in. Let's go. Three, two, one, begin. All right. First up, we have the Outbound Tender Volume Index. This measures the electronic tenders between shipper and carrier. The more requests there are, the higher demand is for transportation, Uh, which means if this index is elevated, as it has been over the past two years, demand is also elevated. And we are currently about 22% below where we were last year. Most of those tenders, however, were rejected last year. So we're still seeing relatively high demand compared to the previous few years. 
Something to take away from this chart, however, you see there's a little bump, a little nook there on that white line, that's the current year, uh, and a little bump here after Labor Day. Uh, that is something to watch, even though it does look like it might be a little bit of seasonality as shippers tend to ship a lot of freight right after Labor Day. Uh, we will have to wait and see, check in uh, for a little update on that. Let's move to the next chart, which is our tender rejection index. Of course, the higher this index is, the tighter capacity is. 5.44% as it stands this morning, not a lot to get concerned about at this point. Anything below 6% considered relatively deflationary. So tender rejections capacity seems to be under control for the moment. Let's move to the next chart and look at our NTI and our NTIL. NTI in the white line is an all-in spot rate measurement. The NTIL removes the total estimated cost of fuel. And you can see both of those actually do have a little bit of a nook or a little bump on them on Labor Day. Problem is, we're still in that period where Labor Day might be having an influence, but it's still something worth watching here in the coming week or two to see if rates have still upward pressure on them. And last but not least, this is going to be my big takeaway of the week. Oh, aloha, the average length of haul for freight moving across the United States. The white line there showing a pretty big little jump. Seasonally, we expect longer haul freight this time of year, which could be the strongest impact on tightening capacity moving forward. Boom. Bam. There it is. There it is. Market into. So, Zach. Market into. Trying to see a little bit of a tick up after this Labor Day. As you mentioned, mm -hmm. this could be seasonal. Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be peak season, right? No, peak season, technically, uh, it depends on your perspective. There's okay. peak seasons for different carriers and commodities out there. Like right now, for instance, the Pacific Northwest. You were reading the Daily Watch for the Sonar subscribers out there. You know that it's harvest time out there. Apples, of course, the majority of the uh, are apples. Uh, and I think the world's apples actually come out of Washington State. Michigan, of course, has an apple harvest, but not to the same scale as Washington. Uh, but the traditional peak season you know, that people talk about is that retail peak, that holiday time. Mm -hmm. So all these con consumer demand really drives a lot of that. And that has been the thing that has been degrading. Uh, over the last, you know, several months. You know, we were kind of overstimulated. We've talked about that on previous uh, shows. Uh, and inflation digging into people's wallets. And that's mm -hmm. a big one, and it hasn't slowed down. I mean, we got the latest CPI numbers that we'll talk to in a little bit mm -hmm. here, up 0.1%. And it doesn't seem like a huge monthly movement, but when you look at all the underlying trends, it, it's very significant because we got a flat movement last month. And that flat movement was really, I think, a lot of people just like sigh of relief, like, ah. But one of the things that we said is like, hey, the only thing that moved down was gas yeah. and, and, and energy prices. Everything else remained elevated. I kind of want to touch on this higher. real yeah. quick yeah. Uh, before we get into the news of the day, which obviously will, uh, you know, be around a lot of rail. But the, uh, the, the, my, my big question here is we've had months, you know, of interest rate increases. Yeah. And... You look at the that the inf the rate of inflation, it's not it's obviously not having a strong impact on it, Anthony. And if you're in the Fed at this point in time, why are you thinking that raising interest rates at the pace we are is actually going to have this level of impact? I mean, we're like I it's you know we've, I've talked about this. I personally believe that it is totally out of the Fed's control at this point. Mm -hmm. Most of the inflation that we are seeing is a supply side inflation, yeah, which is largely driven by outside forces outside of the domestic United States. Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that go into it because, like you said, that supply-side issue, 
um, the amount of stimulus uh, that was deployed throughout the pandemic that really kind of started the surge of demand mm-hmm. uh, throughout the beginning of the pandemic and throughout the midst of it, really. And then now you also have the supply chain issues throughout. So there were these issues with our infrastructure that have been there for quite some time, and it was really exposed throughout the pandemic, throughout this huge spur of demand. Mm-hmm. And so now what we're seeing here is that the Fed, a little bit too late, now looking to raise interest rates. I think um, there is a worry there around inflation. And there's this strange dynamic that happens at the Fed. It's like they, it's like we said in earlier uh, podcasts that they almost treat it like a quarterly call because they have to be very precise with how they phrase things because they can't incite any panic. They right. can't try to really really derail activity or, or, or really perceptions of the economy. So, for example, uh, throughout the beginning of the midst of the pandemic, um, they said there was going to be an inflation. And if there is an inflation, it's going to be transitory. Now, fast forward, here we are. We're in the midst of um, some really bad inflationary times. And now we're hearing that, hey, this isn't a recession. This There's no recession to be had. Even though we've had back-to-back quarters, there's no recession. I don't get it. I don't so get it. <laughs> there's going to be like this, just trying to ease and cool whatever it is that's going on. Yeah. But I think in the back room, things are just on fire. And I think okay. this is just going to be one of those things where, okay, we have to get inflation under control. We have to increase interest rates as much as possible because on the back half of this thing, when it gets really, really bad, we're going to have to have some type of levers to pull. I think that that calm that we were talking about a little bit earlier mm-hmm. on in the show throughout, uh, you know, post 0809, we saw a lot of issues that were being done with um, lowering interest rates at, you know, near 0% and really kind of influencing the stimulus in the economy and this quantitative easing that now I think has come to fruition. In addition to the stimulus packages that were deployed, we're talking about taking money out of the American economy or diminishing some of that spending power, essentially. And so that's going to be the building block, of course, of the U.S. economy. Also, it's almost talking about both sides of the mouth here. So we look at this inflation (laughs) bill, the CHIPS Act, things like that. It has nothing to do with inflation. inflation. (laughs) And it's increasing spending from the government, which needs to come down. And so there's all these variables that seem to be counterintuitive at the moment. Yeah, and I, and I get that they're trying to prepare for what they feel is probably imminent in terms of economic recession. Uh, they want to have something in their quiver there that they can stimulate demand with. But in my opinion, I just don't see this being like the, the, the soft landing scenario is, is kind of out of their hands. And I just feel like they're going to make it actually deeper and worse mm. And that's going to contribute to the longer-term problem. Anyway, I, I obviously am not, you know. I, I think equipped. mentioning that, I yeah. think it, Jerome Powell has a decision mm-hmm. to make. Does he yeah. take the Paul Volcker approach from the late 70s, early 80s and just say, hey, you know what? We're going forward with this uh, interest rate hike yeah. despite any type of recession, no matter how bad it gets. Or does he pivot and say, hey, okay, we're going to keep going until we see deterioration substantially in the employment market and we see notable substantial decline in the macroeconomic environment as well. I've said it before, the financial sector likes to do something uh, in response. Sometimes doing nothing is the best yeah. activity, in my opinion. But again, uh, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Let's move on to the news and the newsonomics, uh, the stories that obviously have the biggest influence on our freight market and also, you know, supply chains. Uh, So obviously the biggest story of the day uh, comes from the rail sector. The strike averted this morning. 
a lot of people taking deep <laughs> breaths here uh, because this was literally one of, like, this could have really done some damage to the economy. You're not just talking about the intermodal volumes, which, you know, I talked to Mike Bowden-Distel about this, and they really, this really wasn't about that. Mm-hmm. It was more about, like, the coal and some of these bulk commodities uh, that were, you know, really, they're the backbone of our industrial economy. They're the power grid, things that we cannot live without run on these rail cars. And that was the concern here is that we would have had significant damage. It's not like, you know, I think some of the truckload carriers were like, sweet, we're going to get some extra volume. Yeah, yeah, you probably would have, but it's this type of freight isn't necessarily going to have that strong of a push Mm -hmm. in the short term, which I think a lot of people thought this strike would have only been a short term impact. But uh, yeah, this is you know, $2 billion in lost economic output every day is what they estimated. I don't know necessarily what that number uh, truly means, but if we pull up the chart uh, that I have here, uh, O-Rail, for those of you that are operating in trucking, did we see any significant change in the intermodal market? No, not really. Look at the uh, all those lines there. They're loaded container volumes and sonar here, outbound loaded container volumes for both domestic and international. And you can see a year over year, uh, no, almost no change. They're flat. <laughs> so don't expect a big push of truckload freight out of this one. So Zag, the scope of this potential strike that could have happened, um, was this going to be like a one-day thing or was this planning just to be ongoing until terms were met? Yeah, I, I think this is one of those situations where unions yeah, can do some legitimate like good for their their members. Yeah. Uh, you know, not that they don't. Uh, obviously, they're they're there to provide support and systems. And when you're talking about things like the rails, which are essentially monopolies, yeah, the employees don't have a lot of leverage there. And I think over the last few years, and and again, if you listen to these the people there. It wasn't necessarily about a wage increase, but it was about quality of life. You're, I mean, it, seriously, watch the Freightways Now segments this morning uh, on this. And it was, you know, if you look at some of the railroad ORs, as we talk about here on Freightonomics, you're talking about 58 ORs. This is a 42% profit margin. They got room yeah. to make some concessions here. This is, uh, you know, and it's not their fault. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're keeping their costs down, expanding their margins because they have no real ability to grow their exposure to the market. They already have it. Right. It is what it is. And you can't, you're not going to put up more railroads. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're actually coming down. Uh, so in this scenario, this is a, it's kind of an, you know, older term scenario where, you know, industrial era type dynamic that, these guys were underpaid and yeah. their, their quality of life did need to come up to standards because you commit to being a railroad engineer, that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't have a lot of other options. So they, I, I think this was good overall. I think this needed to happen. And um, yeah, the crisis averted for now. <laughs> we, got, we have some comments here. Donna Rand says, good morning. Good morning to you mm-hmm. as well, Donna. Duane Murdoch says, we need a trucker's union. I mean, there are unions for, for truckers out there. Uh, there there's, there's several. Now, the problem with that, uh, unions being applicable to trucking, it's a totally different scenario. You're talking about multiple competitive units in trucking, whereas in rail, that infrastructure is set and hard-coded. Yeah. Uh, so as a trucker, you can leave. Yeah. <laughs> you can start your own business. The barriers to entry in trucking are unlike most in, the, uh, in our economic environment. You can start your own business. Now, that's not to say that 
there's not like, you know, some level of buyer beware here. Yeah. You can't just go pick up your, your truck tomorrow and, and start running. Uh, there's, you know, there's scaling dynamics and, you know, you got to be careful. Uh, you start working for a company that says, hey, lease purchase program, you end up in this, I can't afford to purchase this vehicle for mm-hmm. perpetuity situation. Kind of that old coal miner uh, situation, the company stores, if you will. Right. So you do have to watch out for that. Uh, but in general, there's just too many, there's too many options. There's yeah. too much competition in that to make it applicable. It always seems like when there is any type of unity within trucking that, you know, it starts mm-hmm. to come together. There's a momentum building sometimes on Facebook, on yeah. these other social media. Then it just kind of falls apart before the big moment. It, it, eventually that free market capitalism kicks in and yeah. they got to they gotta pay their bills. They got to make their rent. They can't go on strike. They can't cut. Like it, there's owner operators in general have trouble coming together because there's too many individual interests there to really uh, make a strong push. Um, but that being said, there is another story out there uh, that I thought was very relevant to today's topic about, and Eric Coolidge wrote this one, uh, transport strikes put supply chains under duress again. And these are largely strikes outside of the domestic United States. Mm. But they are, most of them, you really can't strike without a union. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's why a lot of the owner-operators don't, they can't get it together is because they don't have a union, uh, something that pushes them together without being like, you know what? I do have to pay the housing bill. Right. Um, and, and it's happening all over the world. And now I know most people in the United States <laughs> are like, why do I care? Well, if nothing, if you've learned nothing over the last two years, uh, what happens abroad definitely impacts us because we have become a global supply chain. Um, if you cut off airflow in Britain and France, uh, which is, Part of what's happening in this article, uh, the air cargo uh, is threatening to shut down. Uh, That disrupts airline networks. If those planes aren't coming over here, there's freight that they had scheduled to move over here. may not happen. Uh, And then the Port of Felixstowe, again, on the map, uh, the workers at the ports of Felixstowe and Liverpool are preparing to strike. This is 48% of the container volume in Britain. (laughs) Uh, If Britain has trouble getting their freight, those boats are stuck, you know, and the containers that are set to go there, they can't just re-divert, right. <laughs> you know, well, they can divert, but they still have all this cargo. They can't get it unloaded. So it clogs up the global supply chain. So that's why you need to keep a close eye on all these little, you know, I don't want to call them mini events, yeah. but they're definitely events that are smaller than a COVID, uh, but they have an impact downstream. And, and this is something that's happened, I think, throughout since the beginning of the pandemic. When we saw the uh, the recovery, mm-hmm. you know, vaccines, you know, cases coming down in the U.S., one of the big things that we're talking about here was that, hey, we're recovering faster than the rest of the world is right now. And so demand is coming back online, goods and services, things like that. But a lot of the goods and services that we were consuming, especially goods, mm-hmm. coming from overseas. And now they can't really ramp up production at the same rate that we are consuming it. And that was a big issue. Another big thing that's happening overseas right now that I don't think a lot of people are really having their eye on that uh, Rachel Premack and John Kingston highlighted a few weeks ago was around um, the oil uh, situation yep. and coming out of Russia. And so that coming up into these winter months, these peak energy season, essentially, um, we could see an increase in oil prices rather soon. Yeah. Will Europe have enough fuel? 
because it's cold over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're already kind of worried about the deficit that they, that they have. And if they don't have Russian gas, then that's going to inflate the price of gas here as well. Uh, so it's all an interconnected web. And it's kind of like we're set up, we're really in uncertain territory, economically speaking. Would you agree? Yeah, I think there's so many variables, but there, if I were to like, you know, go into uh, like Dr. Strange mode and just look at all the outcomes <laughs> that this can go, right. there's very few scenarios where there is just like a soft landing and we just yeah. kind of come out this unscathed. Um, because even if that were to happen, it's almost like kicking the tire a little bit further down the road to a much worse situation. Yeah, and I, I know that I've talked to a lot of people about forecasting. <laughs> uh, budget season is coming up. You've got to set up your, your budgets for next year. Uh, nightmare scenario here. Um, you know, something that we use, obviously, here, our tender data helps us kind of adjust because we don't know what's going to happen. To, you know, you can predict, like, all that these forecasts do is apply history forward. <laughs> so, you know, whatever history they deem the most relevant, these forecasts are designed because they're not they're not thinking algorithms. I know everybody likes to hear about AI. Yeah, if you you can't program AI in fifteen lines of code. <laughs> right. uh, the human mind is very complicated to replicate when you're talking about adaptation. Yeah, and programming adaptation into forecasts, you have to make it aware of the trillions of variables that could possibly change over the next uh, period of time and. I think that's kind of the lesson here is that you need to figure out which variables you deem the most important. Do you have a, my question to you is, what do you see looming uh, mm -hmm. at this point over the next, let's just call it a three to four month. Like what is the biggest like thing that you're going to watch if you had to pick one or two things to watch here in the next uh, few months? I, was, um, I would say the jobs market. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just so many different variables within the jobs market. I mean, you have the quit rate, which is starting to come down a little bit. So mm -hmm. People aren't quitting as much. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, the participation rate, which is still below pre-pandemic levels. It eased up ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. um, even though we have initial jobs claims coming down, I think it's to a three-month low thereabouts uh, in the two teens, 213,000 thereabouts. Um, there's still an uncertainty around that because we're seeing a substantial slowdown in hiring. When you look at the payrolls report from ADP, when you look at um, the JOLT report, when you look at job openings, we're seeing that there's a slowdown in hiring. So that's telling me, okay, these consumers are going to have fewer opportunities, even though there's over 11 million job openings right now, hiring is slowing down substantially. Mm -hmm. I'll be watching everything within the jobs market because that's going to be telling on how these consumers are going to be able to stay afloat with utilizing credit cards. Mm -hmm. um, the, the student loan forgiveness thing is in sense going to be inflationary building because you're giving but more isn't, spending power back. To the I got to ask you this. Isn't the wage growth the solution and also the problem in this situation? Because so I think <laughs> Jerome Powell, I think what he would like to see, and he can't say this, I think he would like to see um, unemployment take up a little bit because yeah. that would give people a little bit less spending power. So yeah. fewer purchases happening, fewer less demand. Okay. okay, now demand comes down, prices start to come down because there's not such a demand for these things. The problem is right now we're sitting essential goods like food and, yeah. <laughs> and housing and things like that. So Yeah, because people can't afford basic things yeah. at certain at a certain level. And I think these you know, all these unions, you know, are recognizing that they are undervalued, economically speaking. And you know, with they're citing inflation rates of 12-13% and you only gave us an 8% raise. Yeah. What do you do in that scenario? I think so. I think for one thing on the business side, 
businesses have been taking on inflationary hits that mm-hmm. are outpacing consumer hits. Right. And so they haven't even passed all those along. So they're right. still taking some hits, even though that came down, I think, 0.1% for the PPI in the most recent report. So they have to either keep taking those hits and keep hiring or slowing down on the hiring or substantial layoffs to ease some of their margins that they have kind of been eroding a little bit yeah. because you're looking at these inventory issues. They have too much of the wrong inventory. Now they have to do these fire sales, not get the due volume that they were looking to get to secure their funds that they're mm-hmm. going to have for the quarter or whatever it might be. Um, in the terms of the Federal Reserve, they're in a tricky situation because they're going to have to try to increase interest rates, do a Paul Volcker 80s yeah. move here, and really just kind of say, hey, I don't care about what's happening with the markets. I don't care about what's happening with any kind yeah. of political pressure. I just care about the interest rates and inflationary pressures. But like you said, this might be the wrong tool to fight that. And even if it's the right tool, is he going to jack it up to 10%, yeah. 12% like we saw in the 80s? So yeah. that's going to be the other big question here. Basically telling these companies don't spend money at all. And, yeah, capital and expenditures. And, we go, I, I don't know. I, I, that's a hard one for me to wrap my head around just yet. But no soft landings. You heard it from Anthony <laughs> Smith here. And that's going to about turn us off. Uh, for this week's Freightonomics. Thank you for watching, of course. Um, you got any closing thoughts for the people? Even if we are in the midst of a recession, it doesn't have to be a recession for you. Even if you're an individual or a business, if you make the right moves at the right times, I know it sounds cheesy a little bit, but you don't have to go through what the rest of the world is going through. So plan accordingly, save your money, make Target. sure that you are in the right position to weather this storm. Get granular with it. and. Yes. Classy world. <laughs>